Hello and welcome to Arrest All Mimics. My name is Ben Tallon. This is the Creative Innovation Podcast. How are you doing, everyone? Hello, welcome. Thank you for coming back. If you're a regular, welcome on board if you're new. Nice to have you all. A pleasure. Uh, the weather this week is monstrous. Yep, we're tackling a big one. We're tackling pricing. So thank you to everybody who helped in the preparation for this, who got involved in a very dynamic, busy Twitter thread. Uh, it's a huge, great resource, as we're going to hear more about coming up. But thank you. Thank you. It was very valuable. We've got some great opinions. We've got Blair Enns coming up, CEO of Win Without Pitching, which he founded in 2002 after more than a decade in new business and account management roles in some of the world's largest ad agencies and in the smallest design firms. He's also the author of Pricing Creativity, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour. So sit tight, strap yourself in. It's a big one, it's a long one, but I think we're going to get down to the nitty gritty uh, of that beast that is pricing creativity because it's a fucking minefield. Sorry for the profanity, it's a passionate issue. It's something that's kept me up all night. I'm knackered this morning. I was up at half five this morning making notes because my brain would not shut down and I kept thinking... I have new things that I needed to cover, so there's a lot to get through. Bear with me, please, but do sit tight. For anyone who's ever struggled with pricing, I think this is going to be of value to you. So let me know your thoughts at Arrest or Mimics. Thank you for tuning in. But quickly, a thank you to the sponsors who make this possible, who make this show free. For all of you, so please do listen and go and support them. IllustrationWeb.com, founding sponsor, illustration and animation agency, representing a whole host of international, fantastically talented illustrators, hand lettering specialists, mural, live artists, gift makers, you name it, it's going on uh, and they do it very, very well supporting our industry. So go and check them out, illustrationweb.com, heartinternet.co.uk, my digital and tech tech, tech sponsors. <laughs> These guys do fantastic SEO advice, social media advice, uh, hosting, domains, all the good web stuff that you need to get your stuff up Google. I usually give a digital tip, but I think this entire episode is going to be relevant and do go and check out the Twitter thread and just look how much a conversation like this can catch fire and give loads of good advice and opinions for some of us who are struggling on our own as independent practitioners. So thank you to heartinternet.co.uk. Foilco.co.uk. A wonderful bunch of guys that have been servicing the graphics industry for over 30 years, offering the largest range of hot stamping foils in all sectors. So the beautiful, sexy, shiny stuff that elevates those book covers, those promotional graphics, those wine bottles, uh, those greetings cards, whatever it may be. These guys walk us designers through the process and they're wonderful, friendly people who help us break it down. And it's really not that inaccessible it's right there they've got this beautiful warehouse in warrington they go all around helping designers to get access to their wonderful foils to really elevate that print job so talk to them go and see them go and check out the website foilco.co.uk last but very not least and perhaps most pertinent to this episode the association of illustrators the aoi.com um fantastic illustration support company however you want to describe them uh, working in the business of illustration that's what we're here to talk about today the business that word that word business of illustration uh, they help with contractual advice until recently um, there's been a big conversation about this they had to drop their pricing advice but they're coming back with a whole new host of wonderful more sustainable tools it's good news all around i'm going to get into why it's important and why it's going to be better shortly but there they are the aoi.com go and check them out There we go, that's the business out of the way. So welcome to the first part of this podcast, the Pricing Creativity Special. So why am I doing this? I've been, why do I do this full stop? 
I'm passionate about creativity. I've been working in this industry full-time freelance for 10 years. I've primarily made my living from illustration. I've made a good living from illustration. It's got better year on year as I've done it. And that's not without reason. That comes down to business expertise, help from other people in industry, advice from from peers, uh, agencies like my agency, uh, illustrationweb.com, and the likes of the AOI. It's based on good knowledge on the likes of business plans. We're going to get into all that now. In the second part of this show, we've got Blair Enns coming up, like I mentioned, CEO of Win Without Pitching. Blair is fantastic and takes the time to talk from Canada, where he's based, in the midst of his work promoting his fantastic book, Pricing Creativity. So it's a big issue, I think, for all of us. And there's a couple of fundamental reasons why this topic is is current to all of us. Um... Let's have a look. So we'll start with the Association of Illustrators. I mentioned them, they're a supporter of this show, they do a lot of great work, and there was quite the backlash when they had to pull their pricing advice um, service as part of the membership. So people panicked, people freaked out, there. people who use it regularly kind of relied upon it, which is not cool. We're a business, we're running a business. I sincerely believe it is our individual responsibility to know our market, to go out and do the hard yards, to find out what the average fees are, what we should be pricing at, and know that when we're going into battle, when we're pricing with clients. Yeah, it's great to have the AI to turn to, to kind of support us and help to get another idea of a price. But what this incident showed, what this bombshell really revealed is the lack of nous in our industry and I think it comes down to the classic thing of we are creatively inclined artistic people who want to get on with the, the fun stuff, with the creative work and we really don't have the resources or the knowledge to, to function as a business but that is what we are because we're out to make money from our skills and if you're doing that, you are a business by default. And I know we don't like that word. It comes across as very David Brent, very office. But it is what we are. So we have to work like one. We have to function like one. And the reaction to the AOI services being pulled um, went some way to showing that we have a lot of work to do. Um, we're going to get onto what they're doing in response to that shortly. Uh, there's a big statement that's come out from the AOI, and I'm going to get into that. And I've spoken personally to Ren Renwick, the CEO of the AOI. But the second pillar of this uh, this whole conversation is the fantastic uh, second annual Illustrator Survey conducted by Ben O'Brien, uh, who's known as Ben the Illustrator, a wonderfully talented, uh, passionate guy who cares a lot about this industry, about some of the taboos, whether it's pricing, whether it's the business side of things, whether it's mental health. Ben is always at the hub of these fantastic and important conversations which seem to be happening in our world right now, which is a, a massive positive. He's done this survey in conjunction with HireAnIllustrator.com and it's really important and really fascinating results Um, and there's one big overriding statistic that's come off the back of it that that goes hand in hand with the AOI's uh, pulling of the pricing service uh, and the subsequent reaction so let's have a look then Um, the survey is up there now at bentheillustrator.com forward slash illustrators hyphen survey go and have a look there's analytics response to it from ben himself um great great work so thank you ben for taking the time to do that it's really important for our industry and where would we be without people like yourself so cheers mate um but just after that let's have a look so 1443 illustrators responded and you can see the whole thing over where i said um 
And from that, 57% said they were not confident estimating fees for clients. I've been doing this 10 years, uh, and I'm on the fence with that question. In some respects, I do feel confident in some fields, for example, editorial, in design. I kind of know how to price my work because I've done enough jobs there to base it on. I've got an agent to help me with, but primarily, I should say, this episode is for people without agency representation. This is for all of us to become sustainable as businesses and know what we're doing in that respect. Um, so it really depends on the job that I'm pricing and all the variables, and that's one of the big issues here. The whole it depends thing just sends people west and they don't know where to start. Um, but when I'm not confident, I turn to resources which were covered in the next part of the survey. So the next section was ways to estimate fees. So when pricing a job, this is what people base it on. So 39% of the 1,443 people use previous commissions to make their fees. So of course, we launch back off work we've already done. So if we're existing you know, average fees that we were happy with, we go in with that again, or maybe we'll slightly raise them at certain times as we grow more confident. Second, time required. So how long does the job take? You know, do you, Are you pricing on day rates? Are you pricing by the hour? A little later in the show, Blair will tell us why that's actually the wrong way to do things, or we should be pricing the value and not that, but we'll get into that later. Um, third, fellow illustrators, 16%. So peer advice, this is huge for me, and I would recommend this as one of the primary ways of arriving at a fee. Get out there, write a business plan, talk to as many people as it takes to get an average ballpark cost for whatever the job is. It is up to you and only you to know what your market value is and what you should be pricing your work at, and then you can use that as a springboard to work out whether you will compromise, whether you will quote bigger, and we'll get into the reasons and the variables shortly. So just to keep this on track. Fourth was advice from a professional service. So the likes of the Association of Illustrators, the Association of uh, Photographers, um, I'm sure there are design industry, people like DNAD where you can go and get help from. So, you know, this isn't just about illustrators. This is about just price and creativity, full stop. I believe that these are all fundamental pillars, no matter what your field. Reference books, 4%. So that makes up what people answered in response to this. I'm sure there are more out there, business mentorship schemes and the like, which I would also recommend, but they were the answers. So it's fascinating. So before I signed with my agency, when I was entirely reliant upon my own pricing strategy, personally, I would draw from the top three. So from previous commissions, time it took me to do the work, and from the advice of fellow illustrators, and I was would usually be able to arrive uh, a fair fee that was profitable to me from that price range and as I got more and more experienced I realized I had been pricing that to market value you know and it wasn't embarrassing so there were my kind of ballpark numbers for which then you have to go and add your nuances to which again we'll get into um people are kind in this industry, this is one of the endearing traits that I've learned. Look at the work that Ben the Illustrator is doing. I shared a studio close to Rod Hunt uh, in London, and Rod was a go-to guy, former chair of the AOI, busy, work coming out of his ass most of the time. Yet he always had time if I knocked on his door with a cup of tea and said, look, I need some help. I, I'm, I'm struggling quoting on this one. He was amazing. He would give me examples of his previous jobs, what I should be quoting, what he quoted. And then we could have that conversation about why Rod was more experienced than me, why his work took longer to execute than me. People are kind, so go out there, talk to people. I can guarantee you, if you talk to enough, you will arrive at market value prices, and that's when you have your original figure, and then it all becomes a lot easier to to adapt to your circumstances. Um, so then it became higher and lower. You know, I knew where the line was. That's crucial. That's where a lot of us struggle. Time was a factor, but Blair will explain better than I do later in the show that it is far from the most important factor. Um, 
And here we get onto the biggest takeaway statistic of this whole thing, uh, conducted by Ben O'Brien and HiringIllustrator.com. 73%, almost three quarters of those who took part in this survey did not earn enough to live sustainably from that illustration. And I think that is indicative of, of why we are creatives and why often we suffer as business people and how that has to be remedied so thankfully change does seem to be happening these conversations are happening more and more historic taboos are getting blasted out of the air thankfully and there is more shared information i've always like i said i found we're a friendly bunch so ask around get some averages that's a crucial action point to take away from this episode business plan do one Trust me, do one. I've done two in my time. And I, I sat down to do them, right? The first one, basically I was rejected because I had bad credit from Apple when I needed to buy a MacBook to get my business off the ground. I needed this thing to operate. Um, and I did. Uh, my credit was based on an old occupant of my flat. It was gutting. A week later, I was offered a place on the business mentorship scheme and I had nothing else to lose. So I took it on and I took that attitude of, business me really i'm an illustrator what are you talking about lo and behold six weeks later i had been dragged into a corner and forced to answer all the important questions they asked me for figures how would i price my work i didn't know i was forced to answer i had to research i had to find out why where what was the method in this madness i had to you know i had to answer and confront all these things that we do tend to avoid as creative people it's in our nature but we have to get around that the second business plan I wrote was when I started an independent music project where I would create a visual communication for musicians, for music labels, and a friend of mine would write for these people. That was our project. We sat down with a student who liked what we did. She was a music fan herself, and she forced us to write a business plan. And again, we were spoilt teenagers. We were kicking and screaming, but we did this thing. And at the end of it, we felt so much better about this business. We understood what we were offering, why it's valuable to the clients we were proposing to offer it to, and how we could price it. So go and do it, please. Take that away as an action plan. It doesn't matter whether it's a template off the internet, a six-week program, something you have to pay for. Work out what's best for you as a character but I cannot stress the importance of writing a business plan and and understanding every single rung of your operation and how to price it. It's so important. Um, So that's my two cents on that. Now, the good news. Off the back of all this bad news from uh, the AOI and this survey, the AOI have responded to them having to pull the pricing advice. Basically, the legal advice made it impossible for them not to. It's the same legal advice that meant they weren't able to explain to their members and to you guys as to why this had to happen. It's a shame, but in response, they've come up with what I sincerely believe is going to be a more sustainable method. So here we go. I'm going to read you this out. And I believe that this next campaign that I are about to launch is going to address this kind of vampire and garlic relationship of the artistically inclined people and business skills. So, from the AOI, in January, we changed the way we delivered our pricing service following legal advice. This was sudden, and we hope you understand it wasn't optional. We were very aware how much the change in our pricing support would affect our members and impact on the wider industry. In fact, the response to our announcement and the subsequent conversations have underlined an alarming fact that the vast majority of illustrators do not understand the necessary factors or do not have the confidence to arrive at appropriate license fees. We know that many illustrators do not earn enough to live with supplementing their income without supplementing their income. My apologies. We also know that there has been a sharp rise in mental health issues in our community. These problems are linked and we want you to know that AOI is committing to addressing them. So whilst this is from the Association of Illustrators, I should say this applies to everyone pricing creativity. 
Moving forward, we've been working around the clock in conversation with illustrators and industry in the UK and around the world to see how best to address these challenges. We are committed to getting illustrators around the world financially stable and running their own businesses successfully so that they are not just making ends meet. We want to see everyone confidently pricing their work and managing their businesses. This is the basis of our new business empowerment campaign. The campaign... We are calling on not only illustrators, but agents, illustration courses, commissioners and champions to come together now, strong and confident, so we can provide tangible solutions to the problem the industry is facing. That's what I'm doing on this episode. That's what Ben the Illustrator and HiringIllustrator.com are doing with the second annual Illustrator Survey. That's what the likes of DNAD are doing. It's happening throughout the industry, but we as individuals have a responsibility to jump in and to get involved and to share what we're finding. So, continuing, we are thrilled to be launching the following in the next few weeks as part of this great campaign. Business Strategy and Client Negotiation Insight Series, Business Strategy Consultations, Five-Year Plan, Understanding Budget and Earnings, Goal Settings, etc., an all-new fee calculator. So in place of, of people giving you definitive numbers, which for me never worked because there are so many variables from person to person, from job to job, that how can you give a ballpark figure for anything? It changes all of the time. This fee calculator is going to set in place the parameters, the variables, the things you should be taking into account when you're pricing any job. I think it's genius. I think that's the way forward. And like I said, if you've written a business plan and you've done your homework and you know what your average figures should be for the work you're doing, then this fee calculator will help you to tailor that. And there we have it. I think that's the way we price our work. Anyway, sorry, continuing. New benefits to help your business, including insurance and accounting support. New portfolio consultations to address client audience miscommunication. Focus on social media strategy, goal setting and direct action. And monthly themed live Instagram Q&A. Self-promotion business strategy masterclasses. All going on, so that's really exciting. Um, it also says the calculator will launch as a beta version or beta version sorry, I'm a Yorkshireman, (laughs) by early April. It's been an epic undertaking to conceive and develop this complex bit software. Pull together resources and throw in some new member discounts and we are nearly there. This is awesome. This is big steps forward. Um, This, of course, sits alongside our one-to-one help desk support. Lou, Georgia and Derek are supporting members with our new business focus, offering in-depth client negotiation, licensing and contract advice every single day. We're providing members with the tools to determine their own fees, which is better for your confidence business and the industry in the long run. We can tackle pretty much any business inquiry, so don't hesitate to get in touch. I think this is incredibly exciting and so smart. It, it, it puts some of the responsibility back on us to do our homework, to learn how to price our work in the first place. And then these guys are there to help us get that right in ways that are sustainable. Um, I've had a good relationship with Ren Renwick, who took over as CEO not too long back. She's done an awesome job. She's forward thinking. She's coming from a different discipline uh, and really is looking to take things forward for our industry. She's always been a big listener every time we've had a coffee and a conversation. Um, And she's all ears. She comes to me for advice all the time and I listen to her for advice in turn and it's that kind of relationship we need to foster in our business. Um, So we did have a chat about the minefield that is pricing. So we are going to be sitting down for a future episode with the AOI to get to the bottom of this also. This is an ongoing conversation. So if I miss things out, please don't lynch me on social media. And if I get things wrong, please feel free to disagree. Let's keep this conversation positive and, and going forward. And we can adapt. Um, So let's talk about the task of pricing itself. Let's get to some action points here and some fundamental pillars because Blair does a great job of talking about value-based pricing and I think that's going to be useful to all of you. But let's talk about some action points and some actual pillars. So let's, first of all, 
big problem, the age-old issue of people in business seeing creative services as a luxury or an afterthought. It's something we have to deal with. The world will never be short of A, vultures who seek free or below market value work, and B, people who are happy to deliver that. The reasons for this are many, but I've gone through them and they include, so get your notes out, this is where you write shit down, I reckon. (laughs) Inexperience. So on the part of the client and also on the part of us, So an action point is to educate not just ourselves, like I mentioned earlier with the business plans and doing our own market research, but to take that and to educate the clients who innocently and simply do not know and have little to no experience of commissioning creative services. If that's the case, who's going to educate them apart from us? If the first figures they get are from the likes of Fiverr and knockoff websites that are offering shitty quality for shitty prices then the perception gets horribly skewed and the market is lowered so it's up to us to explain to our clients why we charge what we charge and why that is a reflection of the value of the work they want from us the second point uh, uh, for reasoning of this is desperation um it's an interesting one we've all got bills to pay right so one of the big questions and this one came from um, laura hope which is at laura hope illustration she asks the very valid question of well what about those tight months what about when a fee is less than market value but we've all got bills to pay right ends to meet um here are my thoughts on the matter and feel free to disagree we've all done it we all do it i do it to this day we do it because reality bites It's important to make it clear every time you go below market value to the client that you are doing this for less, that what it should be uh, is this amount, and to educate them, the client, about what they surrender in light of the compromise for the low fee, right? So it's not saying that you can't take it on, but it's saying that you have to make it clear to the client they're getting a sweet deal out of you, and in return for that, maybe they'll lose a few perks. Blair gets into that later, so I'll leave that for part two. It becomes a problem when the fees are dramatically low. So if you're asked, if you're taking 20, 30 quid, you have to ask yourself, why the fuck have you gone through education and, and, and refining your skills to get to this point and to charge less than a supermarket gig? I'm not devaluing the supermarket gig. Hell, I've done enough of them in my time and I don't regret any of them. But this is specialist. This takes thousands and thousands of pounds and years of hard work to get to. So if you're charging crazy low fees, you're you're getting your work from the wrong places and you're doing it all wrong. And in the process, you're devaluing not just yourself and your skills, but the industry. So think about that. They're out there, but it takes time, effort, and a little research and investment to reach them. But do that. Work out what you're offering and who will benefit from that. And they'll be willing to pay for it. Are you a professional? You should be. And if you're not, you know, then... It's hobby, isn't it? Um, so go and get a better way to, to fund your income. That's the way I see it. Sorry, it's a hard truth, but that's the way I believe it. Um, you know, I think it is better to pay the, bill, pay the bills from somewhere else until you can build enough respectable business to become profitable. Surely that's why we're in this, like any other business. Um, you know, you wouldn't see an electrician going around doing it for a fiver uh, and not living off it, would you? I mean, come on. Um, this goes back to the crucial importance though of knowing the average market values and that's only us to go and learn uh, spending the time finding out so many people and Laura also flagged this up go entirely off what a client's budget is giving them the power but if we know ourselves the rate we should be charging and we state that clearly to the client then we, we have two points right we have their 
budget, our price. And then we can find a middle ground. We can find a point of compromise. If we can work something out that works for both of us, then I think that's when it's fine to take on those jobs because we have to pay the bills. But again, let them know they've had a sweet deal so that next time they come back, you can say, look, I did you a favor last time I gave you a discount, but you're well aware what it costs. You've had a good job off me. You know that I'm the real deal. Now this is what you have to pay. And if they're not prepared to do that, then I feel you know you have to go and find the people who will pay that. Um, you know, do you know where to start if someone comes to you and wants, for example, a book cover illustration, a brand identity, an advertising campaign, a portrait of somebody's dog? If the answer's no, then surely it's time to get onto that business plan and work it out and talk with those who are more experienced because they will share that information and they will help you out and it is possible to arrive at some ballpark starting costs. It is our professional responsibility to know these things as starting points. Um, Laura did also state that until recently, maybe because of the, the old adage of starving artist, that she thought illustrators were poor. Um, and 73% owning a non-sustainable income does support that notion. But I can assure you from personal experience that I have made more from this industry than I ever did in any previous job. I've lived comfortably over the last few years, um, and that began without the help of an agent. Uh, I know instances of some illustrators making over 100 grand salaries. It's very possible this is specialist and it should be charged well, and it is very, very uh, possible to do that. So... But invariably, these are the ones that tend to have their house in order, that have done the groundwork, that are good business people. Uh, we don't all start with that, but it is possible to go and learn, and it is our responsibility to do that. Um, a little case study. So recently, I've been doing these regular maps for a magazine, which I'm not going to name. Um, the budget was quite low, and they came to me, and I thought, okay, that's less than what I should be charging but it's still a fee that will pay for my food shopping bill for the month and it's not an embarrassingly low fee. So I turned around and I stripped back the work to a point where it still looked good, the client still got a good job from it, I was happy enough with it and I got pay that was worthy of it. So I, in two hours work, which is what we got it down to, I was able to make this job very profitable. Again, Blair is going to articulate that better than me later on. Um, and another reason why we undervalue ourselves is, of course, is imposter syndrome and low confidence. After all, it always feels likely that someone's going to invest healthy sums of money in a new computer, uh, building a new building or a, a raft building exercise for a team. You know what I mean? These, these morale exercises, they'll always find somewhere better to pay in the money than in creative. That's the historic devaluation of what we do. Um, but often that is in, a, in the, the mind of the beholder. So it's that idea to us of somebody opening the wallet for this beautiful thing that we've done since we were in nappies. That feels like a fantasy, doesn't it? It's not. It's really not. And do you really value your time less than minimum wage when you've had to spend years getting here? So again, it's about breaking through that perception. And over time, confidence will come, trust me. But if you know the worth of your services from the beginning, like I said, spent time to get here, then take that deep breath, deliver that quote based on market value. And trust me, the right clients will buy it. So go out there and find them. Um, it does take time to get over this. But get over it, we must. That's my thoughts on it. It doesn't matter whether you're just out of uni, whether you've got 50 years in this industry, you are a professional with a specialist valued skill. Um, so spend the time seeking the right business relationships that respect you, that are built on professionalism, where somebody gets something worthwhile from it. Um, so a little note on working for free. This is a different conversation entirely. But it happens. Don't do it. That's the bottom line. By all means, skill swaps, charity work, um, personal projects and collaborations, these are very valid ways to spend free time working for nothing that will benefit you in the long run. But when people ask for work for free, simply don't give them it because they are insulting you, they are insulting the industry and it degrades it. Trust me. Um, 
Here's a little story. When I was first starting out, right, I had no clients and I got approached by a well-known magazine, which again, I'm not going to name, so on all the newsstands. And they came to me and they wanted a double-page spread. Ben, we love your work. We love what you're about. We think you fit what we do beautifully, but we have no budget. Okay, so I'm new. I'm inexperienced. I had no agent. Luckily, what I did have was a studio mate, Danny Ellison, who'd been doing this longer than I had. So I turned around and I said, man, I've just got this query I've got no clients. Here is a chance to get a double page spread in my portfolio that I can then go and get more business with. Should I do it? He said, look, okay, here's here's the way I see it. I understand where you're coming from. I see the value in what you're saying and I see the reasons why you want to compromise and do this. But how long would it take you to do the work they want? I worked this out, I think it was between 12 and 16 hours. So about two working days, pretty much. And he said, okay, how many people could you hit up in those two days? Clients that will pay you. And I said, 80 to 100, maybe, if I get my head down. And I blast them one, you know, personal emails telling them why my work benefited their publication or whatever it was. And he said, okay, so therefore, are those two days better spent working on someone who should be paying you for that work or going after the people who can pay you to do the work? The answer was the latter. And I had this sickly feeling in my stomach that I'd really fucked up, that I'd really dropped the ball, that I'd missed this chance to get a client. But I got my head down, I got the kettle on, and I started to approach people. And by the end of that week, I had £600 worth of work, which might not be a lot to some people. But at that time, I was paying 150 quid a month rent in Preston, where I studied. I was paying 40 quid a month to share a space in a studio. And what that meant was, I was able to sustain myself freelance for that month, and I've never looked back. I've been freelance ever since. I met my wife through one of those commissions, and that remains one of the biggest lessons I've ever had as far as working for free goes. So that's my thoughts on it. There are places to apply your time for free, skill swaps, charity, the rest of it. But really, if someone should be paying you for that skill, do not do it, because it messes it up for all of us. That's my thoughts. If you disagree, again, hit me up at Arrestalminix on the social. Tell me why. If you can disprove that point, please come and do it. I would be happy to be proven wrong, but I really don't think you will. Um, so, the last point. Before we get onto this stuff, i got to thank Artie Mikey, who's under at Artie Mikey on Instagram. Um, he said to me, I hope this is this podcast isn't just another wishy-washy conversation where we all feel more confused by the end of it. He put a rocket up my ass, and that's why I'm going through all this stuff because I wanted to give you guys some tangible action points to take away to arrive at the right fees for your business. Because hell, we all hear the reasons as to why we should be charging more money, but we never get those ballpark figures. Only you can arrive at that. So I got to thank Mikey for kind of making sure I spent the time researching and talking to you guys about this. And another thing that he flagged up was the, the dangerous presence of these these arse-end websites like Fiverr um, who offer dirt cheap design work for people. Um, and I put it out to you guys, so I got this raft of responses about their influence on the industry. Uh, the overriding sentiment seemed to be that the, the clients worth working for will always pay and respect good design and want the proper human relationship and the good quality design. Nonetheless, there is a damaging side to this. So um, risk, it comes down to risk. I think good clients do not want to risk their business by parping out 50 quid to someone who they've never met and getting like a, a stock thing. It's going to shoot them in the foot and you will find, and I've had lots of conversations with, with business owners who actually went down that route because of financial restriction. Um, 
only to get their fingers burned, to get disgusting service, to get substandard results. And in the end, they had to pay twice. So here are a range of responses for uh, people who got involved in this thread, which you can still go and see at Arrest All Mimics on Twitter. Thank you for all those that got involved. And here is... Um, Here's a, here's a few snippets. So, Dave Sedgwick, alumni on the podcast, at Studio DBD, says, We all feel frustration with the cheap resources. If we are truly confident in our ability and approach, then we shouldn't be too worried. As a cheaper alternative to everything in life, it's what you perceive to be value at the end of the day. You can eat lunch in various places, but you remember the better food and the service over a greasy bag of chips. <laughs> Danielle Molinier from uh, at Studio Dotto says, Sorry, that's uh, Studio D-O-T-T-O. Check her out, awesome work by the way. So it's frustrating, but the lack of quality for these prices shows through. I have the faith that good clients can tell the difference. If their business grows, they'll likely commission a rebrand. Uh, Nick Chaff, at Nick Chaff, he asked whether these people might be held legally responsible if the price breaks down into less than minimum wage for what they're paying. Good point, interesting question. At Dion Kitchen, we've got Dion coming up on the show not too long for a self-promotion special, which is going to be another good practical one. Um, She says... Uh, this highlights the importance of community, people sharing tips online and helping with prices to try and counter the balance of these cheap sites uh, and that universities should discuss the business more, which I agree with. So if you're listening and you're a lecturer, um, I'd like to know your thoughts. Darren McChrystal, spelt M-C-C-H-R-Y-S-T-A-L, at Mr. McChrystal, says, I do a lot of packaging design. I used to do a lot of combined packaging and logo design projects, but more and more the clients are either using online logo creators or sites like Fiverr. Interesting. Um, Again, I would question the clients you're working for and their respect, and and maybe it's the time to shift the business. Uh, My opinion, again, please, Darren, let me know if that's a a huge foot-in-mouth moment. It might be. Let me know what the deal is there. At Lolly Gag Smith, cheers to Lolly for this. She said a lot of clients go to these sites because they don't know any better. Again, this goes back to our need to educate those clients as to why we price like we do. Uh, plus, these sites dominate SEO, so if anyone tries to search for a design at these sites, marketing is so strong it's hard for the smaller companies to be visible. Uh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So thanks to Lolly for that one. She also later went on to flag up um, the importance to understand that some countries' economies are lower, therefore their lower prices are reflective of that local market. So again, globalisation has a part to play in this too. At Superfried, also being on the show, go back and check up his uh, check his episode. Mark from Superfried says, it's damaging to the industry regardless of where you are in the food chain. There's already a perception that we should pitch for free. If the first thing you see when searching for help with your identity are these daft prices, then any normal rate will look expensive. Again, very true. Um... So we have to fight this fight. Sean Lane at S. Lanius says that clients in air air quotes who use these services in air quotes usually deserve the results they receive. You get what you pay for in life. Paul Maskew at I am Logo Paul is so damaging for the industry. Some clients don't understand the research and craft that goes into our logo, logo mark. We spend years in higher education getting good at our craft. Clients do not value your craft and not worth having. Uh, Again, it's you know it's about the the rounded education of people who might innocently walk into these websites not knowing what good design is or what a good service should be. Um, there's only so much we can do to negate that, but we have to when we get the opportunity. Um, at Harry underscore go lightly says damaging as fuck. <laughs> so many startups, even the creative ones, have no idea of the worth and importance of good design. Even multinationals love to quibble over twenty quid when it comes to creative. 
Dave Bowers at Likely Story underscore Manchester says, I think they're set on a different frequency to serious creatives whilst also doing us a favour. They're a magnet to clients that don't understand the value of design while simultaneously teaching the old important adage, buy cheap, buy twice. Richard Hall at It's Filthy Rich says, Primark of design. You'll get something usable, but it won't be tailored to you personally and will be out of date very soon. No love or care taken in the conception. At Emma Block says, Emma was also a part of the episode with Lil, Live Illustration London. Go and check out that episode going back into, I think it was the 30s. Um, I think they're terrible, but I don't think my clients would consider using them. I think it could definitely be an issue, though, for less established illustrators and designers who might feel the need to compete with those prices. Um, So the conversation of value has to come out of this. Blair Enns will get into this very shortly on part two of this show, and we'll get there in a minute. He lets us in on value-based pricing and the ways we can go about this. So not giving flat rates for a logo, not listing prices up front. It's about creativity, which is something that constantly morphs and shapeshifts from job to job, from minute to minute, um, from mood to mood, which must be customised and applied differently every time we call upon it. So how can you price with a flat rate when that's the case? Not to mention the end manifest it might take on for given client i really believe you're disrespecting them if you give them a flat rate because how do you know that the work entail for their logo should be the same as the next person it doesn't work like that so for the most part it goes against the very nature of creativity to offer price lists and set rates so blair will do that side of this podcast and get into that in a moment um but it's down to the individual again to work out the nuances so let's have a look let's get into that then the last part we're going to, before we go into part two, um, thank you for persevering with me. I hope you'll agree it's worth uh, the longer show for, for this because it's a really important issue. So there are consistent factors that we have to take into account. We have our personal variables, but we have consistent factors. So licensing, where will the work be used? Um, you know, all of these things that we all have to take into consideration when pricing. Um, is it a three-year license? Is it going to be used in all global territories? Is it print and digital usage? We should all be asking these kind of questions. Um, do they want a full buyout, for example? It's up to us as businesses to understand this. I know I keep coming back to this point, but I can't get across just how important this is. Um, so do hit me up on Arrest All Mimics on the social if I've missed some points here. But these, I think, are the variables. Once you've got that ballpark price, having done your market research, having talked to people in your industry who will help and offer average fees, once you know what you should be charging, then you have to apply your circumstances. And these are the main ones which I've got listed. Please do add some if I've missed them. Experience. So hard-earned, and it comes with expert skills. Stan Chow is about three doors down the corridor in my studios. He's been doing this longer than me. He's a better reputation than me because he's built his cult status through his beautiful style, deservedly so. It puts him in a position where he's probably in demand bigger than I am, for the most part. So he is able to add that experience into the equation and probably quote a better fee. That's fine. That's something we have to consider. Suitability is another one. I mentioned the knowledge and the specialist factor. Some people will be handpicked for a certain job based on their style, aesthetic quality, their knowledge, their ability to deliver with a track record. So if you're well suited to a job, that has to be valued. So for example, my first client was when Saturday comes, they were a football client and they came to me because I'd been sending them bespoke samples portraying my knowledge of football my love and my passion for the sport they didn't have to educate me on the subject they knew that i could work with them on these topics that should be valued so suitability is another one 
Um, time, of course time plays a part. I'm not saying none of us should use day rates or hourly rates because we do. We have to consider how long a job will take and we have to cost accordingly. But it is, like I said before, it is not the most important factor and should never be the sole factor when we are charging for our skills. Speed. There's a misconception that speed should equate to cheaper money. Bullshit. Um, some of the best designers I know who are so efficient, who are so hardened by experience and the work they provide, that, that they felt like they should be charging less because it only took them 10 minutes. What the fuck? Are you clients saying to me then that because I can turn this around efficiently, quickly, of high quality, that I should be charging less or taking longer to get the work to you to justify the fee? No, bollocks, that doesn't make sense. That's utter nonsense. So if you're in a position where you can provide a fast service at high quality, value it. My God, like that, that should be charged at a premium. So there you have it. You know, that's a really important one. Value. This, what rests on the job you're trying to price for the client? If it's an ad campaign and it's critical to the future of that business for the next year or six months or two years or whatever it might be, that's why it should be charged way more than editorial, which will be tomorrow's chip paper. No disrespect to editorial illustrators, I do a lot of editorial, I did it from the beginning, but the reason I was able to get my foot in the door is because there is less risk that comes up again, that big parameter risk. If I screwed up on a job and got it wrong, that editorial client might never use me again, let's say it's a newspaper, The Guardian, one of my early clients. If I got it wrong, they'll never use me again, but it's not going to crash the newspaper's business, is it? It's They can replace it with a stock image, or even if it goes to press it will be tomorrow's chip paper. So there is less risk there. So that's why editorial is charged much less than the likes of an advertising campaign or publishing. So again, value to the client. If that brand identity is is the next 10 years for that business, my God, that's why you hear about these million pound fees. Again, Blair will get into that. He's going to talk about PepsiCo and Nike and why the stories of their logos are so relative to this. Um, desire. So how much do you want to work on a job? This shouldn't mean that you should bend over and have your ass smacked. But what it should mean is that you will consider making the job work for you. I recently worked for a film production company startup and they wanted a hand-painted lettering logo. That's what I do. I'm a specialist in that. And they came to me and they loved what I do. They spoke very highly of the work I did. But they told me that they only had a limited budget, but they wanted to pay me properly for whatever, you know. So how could we work this thing out? I loved what these lads who were setting up this company were about. Um, and I wanted to work with them because they were passionate about what I did. So I talked to my agent and I said, look, let's let's be flexible on this one. Let's see what their budget is. Let's come at them with the price and maybe we'll take away a couple of rounds of amends. I will not set this thing up in landscape and portrait and do all their social media banners, which is what I sometimes do when I create a logo. So we stripped back what they got for that fee. And in the end, we were all happy with it. They got a good logo. I got a nice job. I was able to pay my bills that month. Um, and we all won so the desire to work on a job the flip side of that is if you're rammed busy and you can't take any more work but somebody comes to you with a with a project it's like you're in a position of strength there so you can turn around and say well I don't particularly want to add any more to my schedule but if if you'll pay me higher than what I'm normally going to charge to make that compromise then I might do it you know again that's where it goes track record What's your history? Can you, have you proven time and time again that your work for these businesses delivers and gives them what they were after, that value? If so, 
then that's when you charge more. My track record in football, having done this 10 years, now includes the Premier League, UEFA, Arsenal, Man City, Man United. So I like to think, and I've seen from experience, that footballing clients, when they come to work with me, they want that. They want someone who knows the game, who's got a proven track record and experience. So again, that's another thing that you can earn over time. Usage. You should be considering usage. If it's a global rights job, if it's a buyout fee to to brand a global agency for all that time, then you should be upping your fee dramatically. And again, what that fee is, go and find out. Go and talk to people who've done that work. Go and get an aggregate and, and, and then apply it to all the other parameters that I've just talked about. Pressure. Live work, I do a lot more live jobs recently, uh, and what that means is I'm under immense pressure to get it right first time, on location. Not only that, but I'm also performing. I'm not just an illustrator, I'm now a performer, putting myself at risk, having to travel to the job, buy the materials, take the materials to the job. All of these things mean that I charge more than I would do for a day in the studio. So again, what is the pressure? Turnaround. How quickly does the client want the job? If they want this job yesterday and it's urgent, whose fault is that? Certainly not your fault or my fault. So you should be charging more for that. If I've got to get my ass out of bed on a weekend because somebody's come to me with a job on a Friday, deliverable for Monday, which happens quite a lot, these days I turn around and I go, well, I'm sorry, but that's not my fault. So it's going to cost this much and I will put a premium on that. And the client is desperate and they know that they've messed up their end. Therefore, they pay it happily. So it's another thing to consider. I'm out of breath, I'm knackered. I hope I've done you a service there. I hope I've given you some action points, some things to think about. But I really think that if you listen back to that, even if you need to do it time and again, there are things in there that will enable you to create a pricing structure that is relative to your industry, that is fluid, that can be customised for you, and it won't insult your ability and it will not degrade the industry. Please let me know if I haven't. Please let me know what I should be doing uh, because I want to get this right. We're going to be returning to this, uh, this topic down the road with the AOI, with their new campaign. I'm going to be doing an exclusive episode on that topic. We're going to be getting down to it. Um, thank you for listening to part one. Um, get us your thoughts, please, at Arrest All Mimics. I really want this conversation to be fleshed out more, to be built. But I hope that this episode can be used as a go-to resource for you guys to get better at business because that's the overwhelming thing from Ben the Illustrator and HireAnIllustrator.com survey from the AOI's pricing advice and the response to that. We are creatives, but we are businesses, so do yourself a favour and, and, and respect this wonderful ability you have, the time, the energy, the money you've put into getting to this point and work out what it takes to price accordingly and make a good living. It may take time, but it's worth it and it's necessary and surely we want to create a sustainable creative industry for all of us in the future where we can all earn well and provide awesome services so thank you for persevering i'm going to get you on to blair ends now thank you again to the sponsors illustrationweb.com heartinternet.co.uk filecode.co.uk and the aoi.com um the next part then so part two here we go blair ends winwithoutpitching.com forward slash books blair's book came out He's going to tell us why it's so expensive, but he's going to talk about pricing creativity and value-based pricing. It's fascinating. He articulates it really well. He's traveling around the world doing seminars. His company is fantastic. Dig in. Get the book. Um, The price, again, it'll blow your mind, but he explains in the show why they'll offer a full refund if you do not make money off the back of this book and why it's priced according to what we're about to talk about. So there you go. 
Thank you to recent guests, Jane Boyer, Ward Thomas, Sean Ryder from the Happy Mondays. Go back and have a listen. Please do keep spreading the love. Drop us a little review on iTunes. I've talked for enough on this section. Let's get into it with Blair Ends. Nice one, guys. Well, uh, well, well, let's well, let's get into the book then. Let's tell us a story of uh, basically what gives a little rundown of what it is and, and how, it, how it came to be. Yeah, the book is called Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. It came out in January of this year. Um, and wh- what is it? Uh, I guess it's a, it's a guide uh, to profit beyond the billable hour for creative professionals. So my my kind of backstory, I won't give it all to you, but I've uh, I run a company called Win Without Pitching. It used to be a business development consultancy to creative firms, so design firms, ad agencies, etc. Um, at the epicenter. And about five years ago, I switched that to a training company. Uh, so now we've got employees and coaches, etc., and we we work with about a hundred firms at any given point in time. And at about that time, so 2013, I was really starting to wrestle with the issues of value and pricing and value-based pricing. And I realized I didn't really know much on the topic, so I started to read the canon of literature on pricing, and I I was kind of transformed. My ideas on on how creative professionals should get paid or could get paid for the value that they deliver really changed. And then at some point, um, it was suggested to me I should write a book on this, so I did. And there are a lot of, I resisted initially because there are a lot of good pricing books, but I realized a friend of mine said to me, yeah, your clients aren't going to read those books. And what he meant by that is most, you know, my clients, creative professionals, they, uh, most of these books are somewhat textbook-like and academic. So I wanted to write a pricing book that a creative professional would read and enjoy and then reference again. So it's kind of like, I like to think of it as a readable desk reference manual, if that's, uh, yeah, that's how I think about it. I think it's great because, um, just to give you a little uh, you know, little background on myself, I started this podcast um, as a result of a number of conversations that were just going on around my own illustration career, which has been going on for 10 years now, full time. And, you know, it, it was, I was just fascinated with creativity and all different things. So I started up this podcast, but it's still to this day, 10 years in, you know, it's still a bit of a minefield. And actually, it's something that I've got a lot more confidence in doing now, pricing my work, and I'm able to help younger people starting out to a degree. But actually, only, only since I came across your own work, and and listening to the framework which i'm sure we'll get into in a moment did it actually you know it's something to hold on to it's something to actually go okay there's, there is a little method to this madness yeah there's in fact there's a lot of method to this madness um but you you know early on you used the key word confidence the confidence to to charge what you're charging and that's a really big part of it so you can think of pricing as um i don't know about equal parts i was going to say equal parts science and art um, but if you run a, a customized services firm, so that's most creative professionals. And what I mean by that is there's only so much scale you can achieve. Most customized services firms where every client is kind of a blank slate of opportunity and you should frame the engagement to those clients, they top out at about 15 uh, clients at any given time. And so really the magic number for most customized services firms, and that includes most creative professionals, is somewhere around 10. Mm -hmm. So if you think on average that a customized services firm should have 10 clients, a scalable 
firm could have infinite number of clients. On the customized end, you really need to um, you really need to maximize the revenue that you can get from each client. And in that type of business, pricing is actually more art than it is science. My, I used to be a consultant, so we had a customized services business where we worked with a small number of clients. Now, Win Without Pitching is a training company, so we have about 100 clients at any given time and could theoretically go to 1,000 or more. And when you start to scale, you productize your services, then you get into uh, audience segmentation strategies, then pricing becomes more sophisticated and it's more, it's a little bit more science than it is art. So on your end of the spectrum, it really is, uh, uh, pricing is really an art. And at the heart of the art of pricing in a creative practice is really the idea of confidence or self-esteem. So as, you know, as everybody's starting out, um, you don't quite have the confidence, so you're pricing lower. You're also in every price you deliver. There's uh, there's this notion of um, of an uncertainty discount that's wrapped up in the price. So you're selling to a client kind of a desired future state, this beautiful place that you're going to help them get to. You're putting up, you're uh, proposing some services to help them get there. You're putting a price on that service, and in theory, that price reflects the level of uncertainty of you being able to deliver. And the newer you are in business, as you're brand new starting out, your uncertainty discount is significant. So you see that and you feel it, like you've got to lower your prices because you're an unknown commodity, and you might even be unsure of your ability to deliver. And the client senses that too. So when a client is hiring somebody who's just starting out, one of the reasons they're taking more risk, but they're doing that in exchange for a lower price. So you do have to kind of climb this confidence ladder over time and you end up with this, like your confidence goes up and then you raise your prices and then your confidence goes up and you raise your prices. But what I like to say to people is, um, you can you can kind of reverse that. If you If you recognize the pattern that you do good work, and you charge X, and at some point X isn't enough. So you kind of steal yourself, and you say, "Over oh, well, the next client, I'm going to charge 1.2 X, a 20% increase." And you kind of work yourself up, work yourself up, get the confidence. And when the next client, you charge 20% more, and they pay it, no problem. You think, "Oh, okay, so this is the new normal." That becomes X, and then you stay there for a while. Then you go through the same cycle again and again. Now, if you understand that that's that's the cycle that you're going to go through. Why not just skip a bunch of levels? Why not just go to 2x or 3x? And again, I made the point that you tend to do this with new clients. So you you reinvent your firm and your pricing model uh, one new client at a time. It's really hard to kind of double or triple your prices with your existing clients. But it's this stair-stepping. And once you understand that, yeah, you, you raise your prices and then you kind of wait for your confidence to come along, well, just reverse it. Just have the have the confidence, just fake it. Just just tell yourself you're worth it. And with your next client, and there's a lot more to it than just being confident, we'll get into that. But as a starting point, with your next client, just try doubling your prices and see what happens. Yeah, you're completely right with the new client thing. And I remember particular instances, not just with myself, but 
I, I'm in a nice position now where students will get in touch for advice and a, ver- a variety of things. And one student I went on to become good friends with first, well, not first got in touch, but she got in touch to ask what the hell she should be charging. She got a query, she was still studying, so she hadn't done any professional work, hadn't been given any framework for this on her degree course. Um, and, you know, was going to go in with a crazy low quote, like £100, you know, for a full identity kind of thing. So I went back and I and I didn't just give her a quote what she should be charging, but I actually broke down the fact that she'd spent you know seven years in education, and even though she hadn't finished that, she'd given up a lot of money to get that education, a lot of time in her life, uh, and actually she was still a specialist. She was very good at what she did, and and she was you know about to graduate. So I, so I I explained this, and you know she said it almost gave her a nosebleed to actually go in and quote, but she trusted me and she did, and she got the fee. Um, and was absolutely delighted. And I think there's something about coming from, be it a minimum wage retail job that supports your study or washing cars, whatever that might be, to then going into, as you say, a customizable service, a very specialist thing that you have to train for. And there's a certain learning curve there and, and a fragility that, that kind of stops people from, you know, they think, how on earth can I get paid that much money for that little piece of work? But actually, it's the backstory of that work, isn't it, that counts? Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, so at first, and then you progress beyond that. So there are really three things that you can sell. Like it's, um, you're always selling to the client their desired future state, but there's three different ways you can think about what it is that you sell and therefore how you price. So let's just talk about pricing. You can price based on the inputs of time and materials. And that's the example you're giving. And the problem that you're, you're speaking to is the fact that you come out of school, you used a car washing job or whatever, your time is worth minimum wage. So you see, you make this adjustment, you're now this you're this designer or creative professional and you think, okay, well, I'm worth more than minimum wage, but how much am I worth? So maybe you double it or triple it and it's still not very much. So that's being stuck at the first level of pricing the inputs of time and materials. The second level, which is only a little bit higher than the first level, is you can price outputs. So instead of uh, pricing based on the value of your time as you see it you can price based on the market value of what it is that you're delivering so in this case it would be a brand identity now those outputs or market value market value in air quotes that's usually tie it's usually a function of inputs um but you're also you're kind of calculating your time and then you're looking at what other people are charging and if other people are charging more that gives you kind of some confidence to raise your price a little bit and the client gets price certainty when they're buying outputs as opposed to inputs so if somebody's if a client's buying straight inputs of time and they want a new identity and they say what's it going to cost you say i don't know it's 100 pounds an hour well how many hours i don't know like um maybe uh maybe 20, maybe 40, I don't really know. In that scenario, that's pure, you're selling pure inputs of time and you're pushing all the risk to the client. Now, when you're selling outputs and you say, okay, the identity is going to cost a thousand pounds, let's say, um, you're, you're usually kind of valuing your time by the hour and making a calculation of how many hours it's going to cost you and you think based on whatever price you put on your hourly rate you think it's going to cost you less than that number of hours so you'll make a little bit more money because you're taking some of the risk you're delivering price certainty and taking a little bit of risk that it might actually take you longer Mm -hmm. and if it does you've given up the ability to um, send a change order so when you're selling 
outputs instead of inputs, you're taking some risk, your price generally goes up. But the highest level after inputs and outputs is outcomes or value. And that's where you might say, well, let's talk to arrive at a price, you would have what's known as the value conversation. And you would try to uncover what the value of that corporate identity is to that corporation or the person who's hiring you. And depending on what it is that you're selling, those conversations can be somewhat easy or somewhat, they're never really easy, um, or somewhat difficult. And it's very difficult to put the, put a value on a logo before it's, before it's done. But if you imagine, if we train, change a logo to say an e-commerce website and you want to price that, you think about pricing it three different ways. If you sell the inputs, you might think, well, it's going to take me 5,000 pounds of time, so I'll charge 5,000 quid. Um, or you could, um, or, sorry, you could say, you could charge, at the purest example, you could charge 100 pounds an hour. And your estimate is it's going to cost between five and 10,000 pounds, depending on how many hours it takes. That's pricing inputs. The second level is you could say to yourself, well, it's going to cost between five and 10,000 pounds of time. So I'll price it at 10,000 pounds. So you're taking the risk um, that it could go over, but you're hoping it's going to go under and you'll make more money. But to price on value, back to the point I'm trying to make here, is you would say to the client, you would uncover with the client the value of that new e-commerce website. And if you determine that that new e-commerce website could generate an excess new uh, new uh, profit in excess of one million pounds a year, then you're going to... S- you're going to think about valuing your service differently. 5,000, 10,000 pounds, that doesn't seem anywhere near appropriate. You might start to think in terms of 100,000 pounds or 500,000 pounds. So those are the three different ways that you can price, inputs, outputs, or outcomes, which we'll refer to as value. And those few firms or creative professionals that charge based on the outcomes that they their work creates, they tend to make a lot more money, multiples of what their competitors make. Mm, yeah, it's, and and this is again another experience thing for me, and this is why I left university slightly confused when you know I was kind of told that okay, you know, if you do one editorial illustration, that's going to be tomorrow's chip paper, and you know, and there's minimal risk, which means you can get your foot in the door as a new illustrator. You know, you do an ad campaign for, let's say, a sports brand, um, and this is where the value thing made it a lot easier to understand, having listened to you talk on, in other interviews, because now it's like, okay, so this summer campaign for next year is going to drive the brand forward for the next X amount of months. Therefore, of course, it's costed so much more, and it took me a long time to understand why that was so in the terms of advertising versus editorial, just as one case study. Um and again, yeah, like you say, it's a value to that client. And, and all of a sudden, it makes it a lot less intimidating to charge a higher premium for your service. Yeah, I mean, even I was talking about how logos or identities are, are it's difficult to put a value on it. But in the book, I talk about the, the contrasting examples of Nike versus Pepsi. So in 1971, uh, Nike founder Phil Knight paid design student Carolyn Davidson 35 US dollars to design the Nike swoosh. So that's about 200 US dollars in today's money. So I asked designer, I first asked the, an audience of designers, what's the, what's the value of a logo? And people 
throw out numbers, 10,000, 10 to 15,000, <laughs> 20,000, and it sounds like a bidding war. And so the first example I lead with is, well, Nike paid $200 for their logo in today's money. And we talk about why that was a fair exchange, because at the time, Carolyn Davidson was a student, uh, and Nike was a startup. So Nike took a bunch of risk. They traded money for risk. So they took a lower price to take a risk on a design student, and the design student needed the piece for the portfolio. And so she essentially traded the experience for money as well. And both parties, I expect, were happy. They created this double thank you moment where the designer handed over the work and the uh, client handed over the money and both said thank you and both were felt like they were better off. So we've established that Nike, uh, that logos are worth $200. Um, but in 2008, PepsiCo tweaked or updated the Pepsi logo and they paid design firm Arnell $1 million to update an existing logo. So we've established that, um, and I I, uh, I believe, and I don't know for sure, but I believe that there was the same double thank you moment where both parties felt they were better off. So we've established that the logo's cost or the market value of a logo is between 200 and $1 million. So one price is 5,000 times the other price. And then... We start to unpack that. Well, why is it 5,000 times more? Is the quality of the logo 5,000 times better? No. Do you think it took the designer 5,000 times longer to design or even to work with and navigate the client? No, probably not. The real value of, of the Pepsi logo is actually shown by, and I talk about this in the book as well, by something that PepsiCo did at the same time. At the same time, they rebranded the Tropicana Pure orange juice packaging. And when the new packaging hit the shelves, sales plummeted. And it took them two months to get the old packaging back on the shelves. And in those two months, they lost $37 million. If the same precipitous drop in sales had hit the Pepsi brand, it would have cost them uh, over $100 million, maybe approaching half a billion dollars, depending on how quickly they could have corrected it. So you look at the $1 million paid for the Pepsi logo in in the context of the value creation, the potential upside of a good logo redesign for the Pepsi brand, or the potential downside if they get it wrong, $1 million is nothing. So PepsiCo gladly paid a million dollars to somebody uh, with the belief that this firm is so good, they are not going to screw it up. Now, the irony is the firm that was responsible for the um, Tropicana disaster, disaster was the same firm that redid the Pepsi logo. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and, uh, my word, yeah. And that's the parameters that they're dealing with in advertising and branding and identity. It's just... Um, there's only but so the, num much. the numbers are so, so big, right? So they're just they're 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 logos, but different companies at different sizes at different states of risk. And if you if uh, the designer of the Pepsi logo said, "Well, uh, you know, I charge by the hour, and maybe we're a really good firm, so I'm going to increase my hourly rate from a hundred dollars an hour to five hundred, even a thousand dollars an hour," they'd there's no way they're going to get to a million dollars. So it's really priced on 
Peter Arnell did a great job of pricing that job based on the risk. And I proposed that, you know, if he had read my book, perhaps he could have charged $20 million for that book. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, God, you know, that, that that's the, about as big as job gets, right? In terms of, yeah. you know, scale of company and, and outreach for, the, for, for what they're trying to do. Oh, I mean, that's crazy. Um, so, so that said, for someone, I'm thinking of the person now who's, who's sitting here and is always charged by the hour and now feels like, my God, I've missed out on so much you know, money that, that I could have been getting. How negative is the impact of the historical database that, you, that I've heard you talk about in terms of you know, what, what we've done before and how it's hard to break away from those negative cycles? Well, it's only that kind of negative database, that's a great term, that's only relevant to your current client. So once again, it's it's easy. You reinvent your firm, not just on pricing, but how you sell, what you deliver. You reinvent your firm one new client at a time. So you have this strategic vision of the firm or the business you're trying to build, and you imagine that with every new client, you're taking a step closer to or further away from that vision. So that's the first point I would make about, about changing your pricing. Um, but the, you know, the negative database, or let's just refer to it as the database of examples, that's a really kind of prescient term because whenever you put a proposal in front of a client with a price, um, the client, they're, they're not equipped to, let's say you put a proposal for some form of creative services and it's $20,000. The client isn't really equipped to look at that proposal and and answer the question, is this worth $20,000? They can't do it without context. They have to refer to some sort of, as you say, database of examples. Um, so whenever you put forward a proposal with only one option and one price to a client, you are effectively forcing that client to leave, to leave the conversation either mentally or physically and go and and get that kind of database of comparisons. Go find some context for your proposal. And I prove this in the book through an image that human beings cannot subjectively perceive absolute values. Most of life is subjective. So your client needs something against which to compare your proposal. And that's why one of the rules of pricing creativity it's the second rule, and I'll back up and talk about the first rule in a second. The second rule is to always offer options. And by offering options, and let's just talk about three, I'll generalize and say three options is best. By offering three different options, three different ways that you can help the client at three different price points, you are now, number one, you're enabling the client's brain to go to work answering the question it's wired or equipped to answer, which is, which of these is the best value? Rather than, is this worth 20,000 pounds? The question becomes, is which of these three options is the best value? And those of your listeners who already use options will see that the, the difference is quite marked. The client really goes to work to solve the problem right in front of you. Um, so that's, that's rule number two, is uh, always offer options. And if I back up a little bit, rule number one is to price the client, not the job or the service. So if we go back to the logo or identity examples, I ask designers, what, is a, what do you charge for a logo? I often get an answer. It's 5,000 pounds or five to 10,000 or <clears throat> it depends. And I say, well, upon what does it depend? And they say, usually it's time. The right answer is it depends, and it depends based on the, val the value of that logo or whatever it is that we're talking about to the client. So rule number one, price the client, 
not the job or the service. Mm -hmm. So if you said logos are 10,000 pounds and PepsiCo said, I want you to redesign the Pepsi logo, here's 10 grand, you would have shot yourself in the foot. So you, you should never have an answer to the question, what do you charge for X? The answer always is always, well, that depends. And it really depends on how much value X might be worth to the client. So that's rule number one. Rule number two is to offer options. That allows you to control the comparisons, like to provide the concept context that the client really needs to make a decision. And then if you combine those two rules and the third rule, anybody listening should be able to, my, my estimation is you can raise your profit by 50% by following these three rules on average. So some will make multiples more. Price the client, not the job. Offer options. And rule number three is to anchor high. Mm -hmm. And anchoring high when it comes to pricing is simply the idea that you begin with the highest priced option. So you begin with the highest price option. So anchoring is, this comes from Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work. Kahneman wrote the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, this is Nobel Prize winning science. It's really powerful. Anchoring is the idea that the first piece of information on a subject in which you're trying to make a decision will skew the final decision. So when we anchor in price, we do this naturally. Everybody does this naturally. Creative people are very good at this. Um, I'll come back to that last point, but clients naturally anchor low in a negotiation. So the first number that they throw out is a low number. You naturally anchor high in a conversation. The first number that you throw out is a high number. And it's been scientifically proven again and again that the first number that gets discussed or put on the table for discussion skews the final decision. So if that's the case and you're delivering three options, you want to start with your biggest, most expensive option. And remember that the price of your anchor option, your most expensive option, it's not there to sell the anchor solution. It's there to make the other options look less expensive. Now, all professional pricers do this well. Luxury goods retailers are very good at doing this. Um, there is no boomerang effect to having an anchor price that's so high. So you begin with a really high number. You say, I have three different ways that we could work together. Let me begin with the most um, elaborate solution. It's a little bit expensive. Let's say the client's stated budget was 10 grand. You might say, it's a little bit expensive. It's 100 grand. And you don't care the client can't hear what you say next because all they can hear is their heart pounding in their ears because <laughs> the job of that hundred grand price is not to sell that hundred grand solution it's to make the next most ex less expensive uh, the next less expensive option seem affordable by comparison does that make sense completely oh absolutely so i was uh i haven't worn a suit for years and um I turned 50 a couple of years ago and something clicked in my head. And I thought, well, I should probably own a suit. So uh, a few months ago, I walked into a, uh, a rather expensive men's clothing store and I said, I'm looking for this type of suit, this color, this cut, and I want to pay no more than X for it. Can I get that suit in this store? And the salesman said, mm, yeah, come with me. 
And then he did next exactly what I knew he was going to do. He said, first, let me try this on for size. And I laughed and I said, I know exactly what you're doing. I wrote a book on this and he laughed too. So he puts on this very expensive suit that's about three and a half X my budget, three and a half times my budget. And he doesn't tell me the price. What they do is they say, first, I'll try this on for size and they make sure it's very expensive. Then they leave you alone with it so that you can look at the price tag and go, oh my God, this is so expensive. <laughs> and what they're doing is they're anchoring high. And then they start to show you less expensive suits or items of clothing that are uh, still above your budget. So my budget was X. I forget. So he showed me something that was two and a half or three X my budget. I ended up at X.34. So I paid 34%. I ended up buying a suit that was 34% above my stated budget. And even when I was trying this suit on, I was wearing running shoes, trainers. And uh, the salesman said, do you want me to get you a pair of uh, shoes? I said, sure. I'm size 11. Um, so he comes back with these beautiful shoes. I put them on. I look at them. I go, damn, how much are these shoes? And he says, they're $1,100. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I have no business paying $1,100 no. <laughs> for a pair of shoes, but I almost did. Yeah. So anchoring is it's this idea. The full name is anchoring and adjusting. So I plant a price in your mind, and you think, you know, that's a high price. And Kahneman's book is called Thinking Fast and Slow. He talks about these two systems of thinking. So you, we, you, we use what he calls system one to essentially jump to conclusions, to take a very little bit of information and jump to a quick decision. We use heuristics. It's very cognitively efficient. And then we engage system two, which is the more rational, reasonable, but cognitively expensive system to kind of reason away from the conclusion that we jump to. So if I'm negotiating with you, I plant a high number in your brain through a, very, a variety of mechanisms I could do this. I just throw out a big number. And then you immediately try on that number and say, no, that's too expensive. So you start to reason away from that number using this kind of more expensive, deliberate method of thinking. But what all the science shows is you have this range of what you would consider to be a rational or reasonable price, and you stop inside the near end of the range because it's a, it takes a lot of kind of brain power, computing power to get to something that's kind of, you know, that's, that's unanchored. So the anchor does its job, even though you reason away from it. And if you anchored low with me, I would start to reason away from that low anchor to a higher price. I'm going to stop inside the range of what I consider to be a reasonable price. So you anchor or you be anchored. And I mentioned earlier that creative people are really good at anchoring and they do this naturally. If, um, if your listeners have ever presented creative concepts to a client and you felt you 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 arrive at what you think is the solution, and you look at it and you go, "Wow, this is it's a little bit risky for this client. I don't I don't know if they're willing to take this level of risk." What do you do? You come up with an even riskier solution, and you present that one because the solution that you really want to sell, by comparison, it looks safe. That is anchoring, and I used to do it all the time when I worked in ad agencies, but I made the mistake of showing the risky one last what you really should do when you're anchoring 
again, it's the first piece of information. So if, if you're showing a risky concept that you think the client will never buy this, but I really want them to buy the slightly res less risky version, then you need to show the riskiest one first. Mm. Yeah, that makes total sense, actually. And, and I have had instances of doing that. Yeah. Uh, another one that I'm aware of is someone's, you know, provided, a, you know, again, they've asked for three options. They've provided one that they know is is not substandard, but but they've gone with a very banal thing, you know, again, in, in order to elevate the one that they really want to do. <laughs> Yeah, and so if we if we take that idea back to pricing, let's say you have a client who says my budget is five thousand pounds, and you're thinking, oh, I can I can hardly do anything for five thousand. I would need to, it would be ten thousand to do something that's decent. So you would come back with three options, and you would say, um, you you might begin by saying, okay, first I ask myself, what's the what's the most I could do for you? What's the most risk I could take away from you? What's the highest level of certainty? that I could deliver to you that that we are going to reach these outcomes that we talked about in our first meeting. And the answer I came up with, here's the solution, it's quite elaborate, but the price is um, £120,000. Now, this the client's stated budget is 5000 and you're showing a £120,000 option. So, again, they can't hear what you're saying for the first little while. <laughs> um, but then you're involved in a conversation, even though they're thinking, well, I'm not going to buy a 120,000 pound solution. You get them involved in the conversation. Then you go to the 5,000 pound solution. And what most creative people would do is if they, if they think it's 10,000 to deliver on that, they'll just cut price and say, I'll do X for 5,000 pounds. But what you really should do is ask the question, what can I do at 5,000 pounds that's still profitable? So your proposal for the banal one is where you, you strip out all kinds of other value. Now, if it's identity design, it might be account management, might be reporting, it might be access to senior designers where you have to work with a junior designer, whatever it is. There are all kinds of things that you can strip out. And in comparison, well, here's what we can do for five grand. It's, it's often not enough. And then you say, now, for just a little bit more, for 10 grand here's what we can do. And for 10 grand, that's the solution that um, that they're looking for, even though it's double the price. But it's a fraction of the 125. And you might think, yeah, nice theory, Blair, 120 or 125 when a client's stated budget is five grand. That's just not kind of real world applicable. But I said earlier, there's no boomerang effect to an anchor price being so high. So I have a friend, I've been talking about him in this example a lot lately, He's an independent consultant. He had a client who had a $30,000 budget. He sold them a $300,000 solution. Wow. So 10, 10x the budget. His anchor option that he led with was $30 million. <laughs> wow. So imagine, imagine this. The client says, my budget is X. And you say, okay, I have three options for you. Let me begin with the 1,000x budget one uh, option 1000 times the client's budget now you can only do that and i don't know all the details behind my friend's proposal but you can only do that when your when your proposal for 1000x the client's budget you feel will deliver far in excess of 1000x in value so my assumption is that my friend delivered a 
$30 million option because he saw that he could create somewhere between 60 and 60 million, somewhere north of $60 million in value. It was probably closer to $100 million or even more. Mm, so as long as it's tied to the value that you might create, it doesn't really matter how high the number is. And okay. so the, in this situation, the client thought, well, I'll just take the... So he deliver, delivers the $30 million solution. Then he goes to the other end. For thirty grand. here's what I can do. And it's not very much. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in the middle, for three hundred grand, I can take some of these big ideas that we talked about in the elaborate solution. And you can get closer, closer to that. You can get some of that. And in comparison, $300,000... It's not a lot of money. Absolutely not. And what's and what comes and what strikes me now as, as critically important is this initial value conversation because the honesty and transparency that that comes from that, and also, you know, hopefully both parties come out of that feeling very respected and very loved and, and like they're getting somewhere together. Therefore, when these prices fall, it's not just pie in the sky. It's it's very much off the back of what that they believe in your service and you believe in the value of what they they they, you know they're trying to get in this process yeah and that and you've really hit the nail on the head that's the big shift that that people need to make and that's why so few firms really do move to the full value-based pricing you can still use those three rules of price the client um uh offer options and anchor high to to charge a lot more but when you're really charging based on value um you have to have a meaningful value conversation and as i kind of alluded to earlier it's um, it's not a complex conversation, but it's hard for people to learn to do. And the reason it's hard for people to learn to do is the key to it is to letting go of the solutions. The key to a value conversation is you go into a conversation with the, with the potential client without ever thinking about what it is that you would do. You remain completely focused on the client. What do you want, madam client? What are the measures of success? What are the KPIs of the things that will measure to determine that you've achieved what you want? What's the value of obtaining what you want? How much would you pay, be willing to pay for for us to help you create that value? Then that's, in a nutshell, the four-step value conversation. So what do you want? What will we measure? Um, what's this worth to you? What would you be willing to pay? Those are the four steps. But again, the hard part is it. you can only do that when you let go of the solutions. Now, as soon as you become an expert at what you do, a subject matter expert, you, you start to see patterns. And that's a good thing. That's a sign of expertise. Client, a potential client starts talking about the situation, and you immediately see the patterns. Oh, I've seen this before. Your problem is X. Your solution is Y. I charge this much for these types of solutions. And that's all the stuff that you need to let go of. To have a to master the value conversation, you need to in the moment let go of being a subject matter expert and replace it with being a process expert. And the process is this value conversation where you let go of the solution, you don't presuppose anything, and you just stay completely focused on the client. Now, I talk about this, and people are listening, thinking, "Yeah, I can do that." Uh, you know, in a workshop, I prove to people most can't. Most you jump ahead, you become you kind of build this cage around your services and your prices based on your kind of database of previous experience. And it's really hard to learn to let go 
of jumping ahead to solutions and prices. But when you do, that's when everything changes. Well, absolutely. And also there's a certain... Surely that's more respectful to the client that you're willing to wait and see actually what they want, like you say, what it means to them. And then suddenly, you know, these beautiful solutions that you never actually anticipated may come to you. And, and you know, let's say you land that bigger price. All of a sudden, you might be able to bring in specialists and create something really quite stunning and, and better than what you've done before, which everybody wins from. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You, uh, you become way more entrepreneurial and you start to kind of stress the boundaries of your business model so when you're when you have when you conduct a value conversation properly you arrive at a price before the solution so the fourth step is what would you be willing to pay for this so you arrive at a price and then you go back to the studio and you start thinking well okay look i could create a hundred million dollars in value here um and if i yeah this i don't want to get too nuanced here but let's say you determine that you know the client. If I if I could do that, the client might pay me twenty million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, then you start thinking, well, I don't I don't have a twenty million dollar solution. You know, my friend who's the independent consultant, um, I don't know what the details of his thirty million dollar option were, but I suspect he had to bring in some resources that he didn't currently possess. I suspect he to to deliver on that solution, he would have had to kind of stress or break the boundaries of his business model, and that's a great thing. Your business becomes a lot more entrepreneurial that way. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. And, and I, I really, I really liked the uh, the airplane analogy that I've, that I've heard you make before in terms of, you know, that it's essentially travel from A to B. But within that, within that airplane, there are so many different services priced very differently. You know, which is a great way of looking at it. Yeah, and I stole that metaphor from. Ron Baker, who's written a, a couple of great books on pricing, pricing on purpose and implementing value-based pricing. And the idea is that you, um, you, when an airline takes possession of a new Boeing 747, they segment that plane and they say, we're going to ha- allow a small number of people to fly first class and we're going to charge them a significant premium. And then some people will fly business and some will fly premium economy and the rest will fly economy. And the people at the very back... Those are the Priceline people. So they, uh, you have 300 people on a plane, and most of them are paying different prices. And most of them are okay with that because some are paying more for other forms of value beyond the core value driver of transportation. So when you're flying up front, you're, you're also paying for luxury, convenience, the ability to sleep, Um the ability to board early, all of these things. And when you're flying at the back, you're giving up all of those things and you're a price buyer, essentially, whether you're buying Priceline or not. And what's most important to you is just the lowest price. And you'll give up, I, I like to joke that people flying at the back of the plane will give up oxygen and they'll <laughs> hold their breath if they can get the low price. So now use that metaphor for your own client base. You've got first class passengers, business class, premium economy, economy, and then price buyers. And you have to decide you even want to do business with price buyers. But in most creative firms, um, there, there are the metaphor would be multiple passengers um, in different places on the plane, but they're all paying the same price. They're all paying economy price. Or everybody's flying first, the better metaphor would be everybody's flying first class on your plane, 
but they're not all paying first-class prices. So this idea that you can start to strip out some of your cheaper clients, start to strip out some of these forms of value, like access to you or the senior decision makers if there's more than just you in the business, like reporting, like like terms. That's a great one that you can withhold. So um, you can say, yeah, I'll give you that price, but... Uh, you don't get to talk to me. You get to deal with my junior person, and you don't get terms. Most of our clients, we allow them to pay 50% up front, as an example, and 50% on completion. So you have to pay everything up front. There's all kinds of value drivers that you can withhold to allow you to deliver a lower price. And then conversely, there's all kinds of things that you could do that you're not doing today um, to help a specific client create more value for a specific client. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go add those capabilities to your business on an ongoing basis because you're taking every client on a case-by-case basis. You're pricing the client, not the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that's it. And, and I've done it many times myself when someone I've wanted to work to, you know, work with just absolutely doesn't have the budget that I feel it's worth. And, that, and, and like you say, I go, I go, okay, we've got a slightly quicker solution, something that, you know, all the things that you've just talked about. And, and I think, you know, of course there are some times when you just go, no, now you're just being blatantly disrespectful and we won't work together. That's that's the, the kind yeah. of, you know, the service prerogative, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, that, that's a great, the aeroplane, aeroplane uh, metaphor is a great way of looking at that. And I think, and again, it goes back to the logo thing, doesn't it? How much is a logo going to cost? You should never just sort of post that price for what that is, because everyone loses loses out from that. Yeah, and I I would imagine I don't know the illustration world all that well, but I would imagine you have an idea in your mind that okay, illustrations start at X, and somebody comes along and says, "I've got point two five X, I've got a quarter of your budget," and you're thinking, "Well, I can't do it for that much." And I always say to my clients. There are very little price points that you can't meet profitably. Now, you might you might decide that it doesn't make sense for your business to be in the low end of the market. It doesn't. You don't want to have price line buyers on your plane. But I think for most creative professionals and most firms, um, it does make sense from time to time to sell excess capacity to price buyers. So if somebody comes along and says, "I need an illustration," and it's I've only got 25% of what you usually charge you in in theory anyway you what it's whether you should do this or not that's that's up to you but you could easily say okay for 0.25x 25% of the usual budget I'll give you this I'll do a 10 minute sketch um and so what you have to do is you have to kind of let go of your standards in that moment and recognize that the client doesn't value your usual standards they're they're willing to pay less for lower quality standards. So you can do that. And you can even say, you, you know, part of the deal is you, you can't tell people that I did it. <laughs> if you're trying yeah. to protect your brand. Yeah, I know people who've done that too. Yeah, don't credit me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the equivalent of, of white labeling or uh, let's put somebody else's brand on it. Don't put a, uh, Don't put a brand on it at all. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God, yeah. And, and and the thing about value is, too, once you value what you do and you know that it's good and you know that it's going to deliver, then surely it becomes about the perception of it. I mean, and, and here's a maybe it's not the greatest metaphor, but I, I thought it kind of worked. I was in the supermarket recently and my girlfriend wanted to buy Heinz beans, which cost a pound, and I wanted to go for the 60p ones. And we must have stood there for five minutes deliberating over this. And she turned around to me and said, you just spent 25 quid on sick bags. 
and I started laughing and I said, you're right. I had this I had this bizarre ad campaign that I was going to do for my hand lettering style where I painted directly onto these airplane sick bags. And it was all about the idea of being envious and, you know, agreeing with envy. And um, and I just started laughing and went, yeah, there, there we go. There's, there's, there's a difference in perception, I guess. Um, and that's it. And if your clients value the specialism, you know, that you're providing, then, then suddenly that's when the perception of price completely, you know, two ends of the scale. Yeah. It's uh, I'm just joking about the argument over the you, you spent how much if you value your time how much time did you spend over the forty p in the uh, <laughs> exactly in the grocery store <laughs> but that's you know the subject of money when I started writing the book I kind of went a little bit crazy trying over the question of time is money or the statement that time is money I thought well is time is time really money and the, when you when you go down the rabbit hole of time or money you realize that time and money are things that you think you understand until you until you're asked to explain them and that you realize you don't you don't understand them all i've now read five or six books on the physics of time i still do not understand time but one of the things i understand about money is there's no real absolute and this is this is true with time as well there's no universal de- description of either time or money that is completely accurate money is different things and there are different forms of money that's easy but money is different things at different times and so is time there are different types of time so 40p is nothing you would in certain situations you would you would just you would think nothing about spending 40p or 40 quid um extra because in context it's it's meaningless so some people use extrapolate that that argument that no every every little increment is valuable it's that's not universally true there are situations where um you're going to think of time no sir you're going to think of money and the value of money as differently than you are at other points in time oh man that was just really just i just went down the rabbit hole didn't i <laughs> no but you, it's still clear yeah what, what you're getting out of course it always shifts and it's always subjective which again goes back to the value conversation well and that's the you know that first rule of pricing price the client not the job that is rooted in the subjective theory of value so the subjective theory of value says that value is really nothing more than a feeling so in um in, from about 1776 till about 1905, there was a, this kind of reigning theory of value in the world, and it was the labor theory of value. And it was essentially put forward by Adam Smith, who in 1776 wrote The Wealth of Nations. And so he said, you can measure the value of something by measuring the inputs that went into producing it. And that reigned for like 130 years, but it reigned tenuously because his theory could never explain profits and losses. But Karl Marx came along and said, I'll tell you what profits are. Profits are excess value stolen from the worker. So to this day, a lot of American pricing consultants would say that if you charge by the hour, you are a practicing Marxist. Um, And in in North America, that's a really big insult, uh, (laughs) believe me. So uh, that theory of value reigned until about 1905 when three different economists at about the same time arrived at the subjective theory of value this idea that no 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 different people value different things differently even at different times value is like beauty it's only in the eye of the beholder there's no such thing as intrinsic value with without an observer without somebody to value it something has no value Mm -hmm. so that's 
that's where you get it and it's the same is true the same is true about time and money um so if you buy the idea the subjective theory of value that we all value things differently then we should be putting prices on things based on how those people were selling to value them <clears throat> and part of that part of the equation is you think well value based pricing means charging more that's a consequence of value based pricing is that you ch- tend to charge more but in other examples like the example i gave of somebody who only valued what you do at 0.2 0.25 sometimes that means finding a way to deliver a solution at a less price and that's where we become kind of equally intransigent i think we really should if we want to do business with people who don't value our services the same way we value them um and maybe we don't want to but if we want to do business with those people we simply need to f- look at the forms of value that we're delivering and strip those out for that particular client and allow us to deliver a solution at a lower price that meets their price that's still profitable to us mhm Absolutely and by doing that it makes them aware that they're getting a lesser deal and not in a disrespectful way but just you know here's here's what you can pay for and this is what you get. Yeah, and some some people are happy to give up all of the all of the things that you think are valuable including the your standard of quality. And maybe you've refused to budge and that's fine. I don't begrudge you that. That's might be a smart business decision. Um but there's always a way to meet the client's lower price. If somebody looks at what you do and says, "Well, I don't value it the same at the same level that you value it." You can still, if you want to, you can still find a way to deliver something to them that they value at a price that's profitable to you. But don't impose your valuation of something <clears throat> onto them. Your mm-hmm. job as the seller and the pricer is to uncover what is the value to this person. And it's not just economic. I said valuing value is really nothing more than a feeling. There are different forms of value. There's two economic forms of value, cost reductions and uh price increases. But then there's this other murky bucket of forms of value that's known as emotional contributions to value. And really at the end of the day, it's not the price people pay, it's the feeling that they get. And we tend to forget that it's so easy to quantify everything in economic terms, but there's so much. If you're a wedding photographer, um, and you've you've got this idea of what the market will bear for what you do, but then you, you look at the economic value of a of a wedding photographer. There's very little economic value, but if you look at the emotional value, it's huge. It's off the charts huge. Yeah. Wedding photographers think they're in a commodified. industry there not there's some like the somebody's the most important day of a person's life and the idea of looking back 15 years later with 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 the client the client with her children showing them the photos of the day like what is the value of that what yeah. how much would somebody pay to make sure that that beautiful moment in the future comes true and that disaster doesn't happen You know, yeah, but you're totally right. But I got I got married eight days ago, 
myself. Ah, congratulations. Thank you. You should uh, be on your honeymoon and you're working. <laughs> we, no, we did. We had a short one, but yeah, I just got back. But um, but actually, there's a great story in that because, the, you know, my, one of my best men is a fantastic photographer who I've, who I've commissioned many times over the years for various things. And he offered to do it for free. And I said, no, 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 I, I want you to, to be there and enjoy the day. And therefore, the, as you exactly what you said there, Blair, the, the, the value of those images. And I knew um, a lady who does a fantastic service. I've seen numerous shoots she's done. I love the way she edits her images. And as a, you know, as a designer myself, I've got a keen eye on colour, the rest of it. I just knew she'd do a fantastic job. And as exactly what you said there, the value of, of letting go of the, you know, having one of my best men worrying on the day and just letting someone do a great job without having to stress about that was through the roof. And, and of course, for all the reasons of having those images to look back on too. And therefore, I didn't, you know, what she came at me with a price was within reason. It wasn't really going to matter to me, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that, you know. That, that's a, it's a great example of how, like, most value is not economic. It's emotional. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we you know, if you're, the, if you're the wedding photographer, you're thinking of the economics of it. Uh, totally, totally. There's a little fun story that I, I'm going to wrap this up now, but I've got a little fun story, which are you aware of Mr. Bingo? No. He's a, he's a fantastic, um, he's more a comedian than illustrator these days, but he's fantastic. And basically this, this project he did called um, Hate Mail. So basically he started a service off the back of a, a drunken joke where people were paying £10 to send a physical old-fashioned postcard with an illustrated insult on the back to that personally to that person. <laughs> and it, it went. he had to take his website down. It went completely through the roof, so much demand that he couldn't meet. Um, and in the end, he did he did a, a very limited run of them and put them together in a book, which went crazy. He got this like hundred thousand pound crowdsourcing campaign, and he's never looked back since. There's all these talks, but all these actually fantastic, well-meaning projects have come off the back of it. And I saw him do a talk the other week, and he pointed out the fact that Black Friday was coming up soon. And he's got because he's got this this sort of insult thing going on. He raises his prices by twenty five percent on Black Friday. <laughs> I love it. I and, love contrarian. And it goes and it and it goes nuts. And um, you know, people people pay the people swarm to get the thing on Black Friday because they know he's taking the piss out of them. But the best thing about that is he completely understands his value to those people who want to be abused by him, and he's delivering. And, and I think that's just a great little niche example of actually knowing what your value is and knowing how people value that. And it goes right back to what you were saying. I wish we'd had this conversation a couple of weeks ago because Black Friday is in three or four days um, of this recording and I would have raised my prices. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I just think it's a tremendous little just little kickback, uh, which is which is a great example again about the, about the various forms of value. But yeah, I that's think um, but I think that's that's fantastic. And I really think this is going to help um, a lot of people who struggle with this monstrous topic. Uh, so thank you so much for, for articulating it so well. Uh, and, and lastly, uh, if you could just remind us where people can get your book. Well, th thanks, Ben. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, the book is Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. You can find it at pricingcreativity.com. That will redirect you to winwithoutpitching.com. It's the first pricing book in the world that's priced based on the principles in the book. Therefore, there are three options. They're all somewhat expensive for a book, but it's fully guaranteed. So if you don't make money from it for any other reason, you're not happy, send it back. We'll give you a full refund. Wonderful. That's, yeah, there we go. Uh, case in point.
I love that. Brilliant. All right, Blair. Well, I think that just about covers it. So um... no, it's been great. I really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Ben. I'm looking forward to listening to. It. I just this morning started listening to some of your earlier podcasts and realized, oh, I should have been listening to this a while ago. I love. Uh, oh, fantastic. I, yeah, and I, thanks for uh, thanks for getting a business topic in there. I know most of the people you're talking about talking with their creators. So yeah, I've really enjoyed this. No, absolutely, it's great. I always try to create. Um, really you know real, real broad span of topics on the show because you know I, I know that i know that often sometimes designers want to listen to designers and so forth but i just think creativity is uh should know no bounds so it's really great to create a broad range of people on the show so so yeah it's great great to have you on all right nice chatting with you ben thank you you too blair take care thank you so much for listening guys thank you to blair ends for part two of this episode on pricing creativity i hope we've covered a lot of the key points as to why people struggle and i hope i've given you some takeaway action points on to how you can better improve and get a better knowledge of your business like i said before it's all about we have, we have to take this into our own hands as responsible professionals in this industry treat ourselves with as much respect as the electrician as the psychotherapist, as whatever it is. It doesn't matter if you're a designer, if you're a fine artist, if you're a creative. Yes, we have to be fluid with our prices, but we have to know what our baseline is, why we're pricing this and what the market value is. And if we all do that, if we all go and talk to one another and, and create business plans and better understand the integral parts of our operation, I think we're going to have a great future for this industry because as we know creativity in this digital age is valued more and more so we'll get there we will get there thank you for listening i hope this has been a resource for you uh, but come back time and time again download the episode over at the soundloud account or itunes wherever you get your podcasts um do spread the love tell people about this don't don't hold this because i think the more of us that know how to price our work effectively the better business we're going to have for all of us we really are. We're going to have a thriving creative industry, which is an exciting prospect. Um, if you're a uni lecturer, please get in touch. I want to know why there's not more covered on degree courses. Um, I think we really should be doing this more. So let's link up. Get in touch. Let's create a dynamic between the podcast and uh, the likes of Ben the Illustrator's survey um, of the AOI. Let's do it together. Let's make it happen. Coming up. We've got Dion Kitchen. We're doing another special on self-promotion, so get your thoughts over for that one. We've already had some threads on Dion's social account. It's awesome. Um, we've got Carmen Masson coming up, talking about her interdisciplinary work, playfulness, um, and enjoyment in creativity. We've got Collins Creative Director, Ben Crick, coming up. We've got Glasgow's O Street Creative Agency. It's going off. It's going on. It's exciting times. Thank you once again to the sponsors, illustrationweb.com, heartsinternet.co.uk, foilco.co.uk, and of course, the Association of Illustrators for your support. Thank you to everyone who got involved in the thread. I hope this has been good. Get us your feedback. I'm out of here for a nap. Nice one, guys. Cheers. See you later.